Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Odyssey House Journals. This is our 105th podcast. That's a lot of podcasts. I'm Randall Carlisle. My co-host is Rachel Santizo. Our special guest today is Evan Doan, and we'll introduce him in a second. Rachel, we got some... Matt just gave me some... uh, some analytics from last week's podcast. Okay. Yes, uh, which state was the most watched or listened to on our podcast? Or um, the city. City. City? Yeah. Oh, I was going to say Ohio, but now um, I'm just going to say San Francisco. You'll never guess this one. I, w- I would think some big city. Des Moines. Really? Yeah. I don't know why. I don't why? know. Columbus was second. Columbus seems okay. to hang in there, and and Salt Lake City was third. Isn't oh, that weird? Interesting. That is very so interesting. So hello, Des Moines. And we had one viewer or listener, guess where? Russia. See? Yes. Uh, Rachel has, Rachel has a, a, a viewer <laughs> or listener named Igor who is in love with Rachel. And we keep promising to buy him a bottle of good vodka if he ever gets in touch with it's us. True. So, okay. <laughs> anyway, enough for Hi, the Igor. analytics. <laughs> Hi, Columbus, Des Moines, Russia. Uh, we had uh, viewers and listeners from Japan, Belgium, and Germany last oh, week, too. I love that. Yeah. That excites me. Yeah, that is pretty exciting to know that what we're doing here in little old Salt Lake City gets out that far. Our guest today is Evan Doan, who Rachel and I have known for a long time. He works at a, and I had to write this down because I can never remember what mm-hmm. it stands for at USARA, or USARA, depending on how you Either want way. to do it, yep. right? Utah Support Advocates for Recovery Awareness. That's a long, that's a long title. So USARA is a yes. lot easier, right? Yes. <laughs> and I think it's so powerful to know that you don't have to know exactly what it stands for because everybody just knows if you say USARA, you know what it is. And, and Evan is on the leadership team there. He's development director. You've been there for a number of years. Yeah, right? coming up on five at, uh, as, a, as an employee of the organization. But prior to that, I had volunteered for a couple of years. So I'm about seven years into my time with, with that organization. It's just been, it's been a great journey. Really great. Odyssey loves working with you guys because Mm -hmm. I I think you're one of the most significant and influential organizations in the state for for dealing with with addiction and recovery. Can you sort of describe some of the stuff you do? Well, thank you for saying that because we really value our relationship with Odyssey for sure. And a lot of what um, USERA does is very similar to the kind of work that that Odyssey does in that we just want to help people, right? Like we want to make sure that people know that they can and people do recover from addiction all the time. It's happening around us constantly. It's not rare and it's not random, right? People recover because they get the support that they need either by going to treatment or accessing um, support in other ways. And so- And and support so quickly. Critical because right. I think it's, we're all in recovery, and I think yes. we know that you, you just can't do it yourself. Most people can't. Right. right? And, uh, thank you for mentioning that too. I should say I'm also a person in long-term recovery. Yeah, just we'll get into your okay. story. In Great. A yeah. yeah. Um, but um, yeah, so we're a recovery community organization, and so um, we really help people connect to what's going to sustain them in their journey of recovery for the long haul. Because we know addiction is a chronic but manageable condition. Um, if people have the support that they need to recover, they they can do so for over the course of their lifetime. Um, a lot of 
times people establish their kind of initial journey in recovery by going to a treatment facility like Odyssey House. And then as they transition out of that, mm -hmm. some folks need some additional support. And so right. we're able to help provide that additional support. We have about 30 people across the state um, on our now five recovery community centers yeah. statewide. Yeah. Um, and um, most of them act as peer recovery coaches. Mm -hmm. And so they're able to meet with folks one on one, talk to folks about what's going to be um, drive their purpose and meaning in, in, as in their journey in recovery. And so um, for some folks, that might be something that like we would think of more traditionally, like a 12 step group. Mm -hmm. For others, it might be something more like recovery Dharma, which is kind of a Buddhist inspired right. group or smart recovery, which is more cognitive based. Um, there's also um, fitness based groups like Fit to Recover or uh, Warrior Strength. Um, there's lots of different options for people out there nowadays. And we want to make sure that people are finding what's going to work for them. And the thing that's cool mm. about you guys is you you outline all these options if somebody comes into you, Sarah. The other thing I think is cool, uh, which isn't necessarily the way uh, treatment centers would deal with, some, with, with somebody in addiction, is you can come into your place high yep. uh, and ask for a pure recovery co coach or just ask for some help. Uh, yeah. Describe that. I mean, Absolutely. I walk in and, I'm, and I'm, I'm still high from whatever substance. Yeah. How would you deal how would you deal with me? Like, oh, Randall, that's not good. Well, I mean, having all of us, sorry, we're all people in recovery ourselves. Yeah. So we get what it's like. We've been there ourselves and we know the pain and suffering of addiction firsthand. Um, and so we want to meet people wherever they're at. And so that means if people are in active use, we want to help them. But also we have people who are in sustained long-term recovery, many years into recovery, who come to us for just some additional support or to reset. Mm -hmm. So we really want to meet people wherever they're at on that journey. Mm -hmm. And um, one of our teams here in Salt Lake, uh, it's called our ARCHES team. And that ARCHES, we love acronyms. Cool program. Yeah, very yes. cool. Yeah. So it stands for Addiction Recovery Coaching in Healthcare and Emergency Settings. Oh, a mouthful. But you have these long... <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, know. I know. We love them, apparently. But um, so they're a team of peer recovery coaches that are able to meet with folks who are um, maybe in active addiction out in the community, um, usually in acute care settings like hospitals or emergency departments or social detoxes. And so um, the way that kind of works is um, the, uh, a number of local hospitals have our uh, arches on call number right. and they're able the doctors or nurses are able to meet with the patient and say do you want to speak with somebody in recovery and if that person says yes they'll call us and we'll be there within an hour to help help that patient navigate whatever comes next for them and that could mean that for some folks it's um, treatment resources or detox um, for some people it could be um, those kind of like mutual aid groups like 12-step or uh, recovery right. dharma. Um, for some folks, it's harm reduction resources. So we might give them a, you know, naloxone kit and say, yes. you know, let us know if you ever need help uh, in recovering from addiction, but, you know, we wish you well. So we really don't have any agenda in meeting with that person. We just want to make sure that they're getting connected to whatever the next step is going to be for them. Because what we were seeing so happen so often was people would go to these hospitals or emergency departments and maybe because they had an overdose or they had, they were in acute detox and they were just not getting to that next step in their care. Right. And so, the, the, and it was frustrating everybody, right? Because sure. the hospitals felt like they were kind of this revolving door of people coming in with substance use problems and they just, with it, people would, you know, get treated and treated, right? Like they'd get their immediate needs, needs yeah, met. But then, and then, yeah, and then they're, <laughs> right. then they're back again a few days later, a few hours later in some cases. Right. So um, since we have, uh, since we started that program, I think everyone is much happier with the outcomes that we're seeing. There's a lot less of that kind of re revolving door happening. And we actually don't, we haven't seen a whole lot of repeat 
patience in that system because yes. we're able to get people to the next step and whatever that's going to be for them. And, and again, so. the significance is it's non-judgmental. Yes. Uh, right. You know, and, and we all deal with the issue of shame yeah. and addiction, right? Right. Yeah. And before we get to your story, because that's very important to this podcast. Who cares about I know, I know, I know, because you matter. <laughs> you matter. You, um, you start, I also want to point out, because I, when I speak about it, I'm like, it's the recovery hub. Go yes. to USARA for anything, because even if they don't have the answer or what you're looking for, they will point you in that direction. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's what I tell everyone. Um, but I also want to point out the fact of the yearly events and the advocacy that USARA provides. Absolutely. For Salt Lake and for Utah. I mean, that is, is so critical for our community. Yeah, and that's that's one of my favorite parts about what we do is yeah. um, we have kind of the voice of lived experience of addiction, and we're able to speak, hopefully, on behalf of Utah's recovery <laughs> community in, in in the halls and tables of power in the state. So, um, for example, um, I represent USARA uh, and our recovery community on um, the, the Utah Council for uh, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Advisory. And um, so we inform the legislature and the governor on how potential legislation might impact uh, people in recovery, which is really cool. And so we're able to use that voice to make sure that um, we're passing bills and policy that's going to positively impact mm -hmm. um, people's recovery journeys in Utah. And we've been able to do some amazing things. Um, so for example, just a few years ago, the medication naloxone was not broadly available in the state. Right. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sure you've talked to Jen Plum or Utah naloxone. And, right. and so um, uh, back then you could only get naloxone in a hospital or in, sometimes in the, in the back of an ambulance, but people weren't able to carry it. So. Um, we worked with a legislator, legislate, legislator to help get that bill passed to make it available to anyone in the state of Utah. So now anyone can carry it. Carry it. And just in the few years that that law has been on the books, we've now seen 3,000 reported reversals of opioid overdoses. So that's 3,000 people that are alive today that would have been dead just a few years ago. Think about so, that. Right. Because right. I think that for a lot of people, policy can feel kind of stuffy and boring, and I get that. But um, when you see those kinds of results, it really is very meaningful. Right. And so just a quick plug while we're on the topic. Um, so uh, this next, uh, on February 10th, uh, okay. we're going to be having our uh, rally for recovery up at the state capitol. And so um, this year, uh, the speakers will be there uh, in person, but we're also going to be live streaming it on the internet. So if people want to okay, join that, they can go to our website and find out more about the rally for recovery this year um, or um, on our Facebook page as well. It, it's fun to see news coverage of that because it's, uh, and I've been there many times, and, and we fill the Capitol Rotunda mm -hmm. and have a lot of speakers, and you have people from, uh, from treatment centers there, everybody in recovery. And what's really sort of cool is you're in the Rotunda, and then you see a lot of the legislators up on the mm -hmm. upper deck looking down at the rotunda like, who are all these weird people who are talking <laughs> about recovery? But it, but it makes a point. It does. And it, we're, we are one of the biggest rallies that happens annually up at the Capitol, if not the biggest. Mm -hmm. And so the legislators love seeing us. They love coming to, to address that audience. Um, and, and that really gives us some prominence. It gives us a voice. Um, because at USARA, we say nothing about us without us, right? So if you're going to be having conversations about people like me, we need to have a seat at that table. And right. that rally really helps provide some of the kind of uh, the motivation for them to invite us to um, talk about how these this legislation is going to affect us. All right. Let's talk okay. about you. All Sounds right. good. Okay. Tell, tell, go. us, tell us your story. Oh, wow. <laughs> now, we, we only have 18 minutes okay. left. Okay. okay. Cool. 
So I'm a, a person, like I said, I'm a person in long-term recovery myself. Um, so the important parts to know, kind of going back historically are, so I, I grew up um, in Houston, Texas. Um, so uh, my uh, my family lived there and um, I have a younger brother, he's three years younger than me, and I uh, kind of grew up in a normal like middle-class home. Both of my parents were nurses. Um, my dad had gone on to get his MBA and was uh, in the leadership of Texas Children's Hospital and my mom was an ICU nurse. Um, so just kind of a normal childhood experience growing up there for the most part. Um, felt pretty well adjusted, felt like I was socially connected, things were good. And then um, uh, when I was 11, it was 1996, um, my uh, uh, my dad died by suicide. And um, no one had seen that coming. We had no idea that he was suffering from depression or was having any suicidal thoughts or anything like that. It just came out of the blue completely. Um, he didn't leave any sort of note behind or anything like that. Um, and so it just, it really um, shook my family in a, a very significant way. And um, my mom was particularly impacted. I mean, my dad was the love of her life, for sure, mm. for sure. And um, uh, she, she was just as shocked as any of us were. And so um, we made the choice to move to Utah because we have some family here. And so we wanted to be close to some of our extended family. So um, uh, my mom bought a house here, but I didn't know that at that time, my mom had been already struggling with her own substance use problem for a few years. Um, but mm. my dad had really kind of shielded my brother and I from seeing that. Um, and uh, when after my dad's death, uh, he was no longer there to, to kind of protect us from seeing my mom's, the effects of my mom's substance use. And so um, uh, it, it just became very evident very quickly that she had a very significant problems with, with both drugs and alcohol. And um, that really created a lot of chaos for me and my brother. My, my, I was 11 at that time, and my brother was eight. And um, very influenceable age. Yeah, absolutely. And we had just moved to a new state, um, and my mom was uh, really struggled. She had a really, really hard time for for many years, and um, she she did everything that I think that she could to try to get better. Um, she went through treatment a number of times. Went to 12-step groups. Was uh, you know had really worked on it, uh, but nevertheless kept falling back into active addiction. And uh, it got so bad that at one point my brother and I were removed by the state, so we were put into foster care. Luckily, we were put with family. We were placed with, it was a kinship placement, and so we were with our aunt. Um, So it wasn't kind of the truly kind of awful awful scenario that a lot of people think of of foster care, but um, that was was traumatic. I mean, it was a a horrible experience to be removed from our mother's care because she just couldn't take care of us at that time. And so I, um, that that kind of persisted throughout my teenage years and into my early adulthood, um, that that, uh, chaos with my mom's active substance use. And I um, had vowed that I would never become that, right? Like I just, I'm sure you guys hear these stories all the time, right? I had similar (laughs) feelings myself, so yeah. Like I just didn't want, I mean, my mom was a lovely person and I mean, both my parents were just very kind. Everything I know about care and compassion comes from them, truly. Um, but when my mom would drink, she was completely different. She she was right. angry and violent and all of these things that I, just foreign to me. And um, so uh, she, yeah, it was just kind of this complete 180 when when she would when she would drink like that. And so I had vowed that like I would never become that. I just I could not imagine doing what my mom what, what I perceived my mom had done to to me as a kid to, to anyone else. And so um, throughout my teenage years, I was very careful not to 
drink or use drugs. Um, I had many friends that did, uh, but that was just not being. I, everyone could count on me to be the designated driver, and I'd go to parties and like and hey, things. Let's take Evan with us. Right. We yeah, he'll drive, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah. What were you going to say? Well, I was going to say you were the DD back then. Yes. You're the DD now. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Life's <laughs> come full circle in that yes. respect. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. But then in my early 20s, uh, I, so I, um, I I came out as gay when I was uh, uh, towards the end of high school and early college. And um, Did that have any effect on you? You know, I was, uh, of all of the things that have happened in my life, I think that being gay is probably something I'm the most well-adjusted about, which is interesting because Good. when I later went to treatment a lot of folks a lot of treatment providers assumed that that was like the thing right right oh yeah right like you must have had a traumatic experience around being I I really didn't like when I came out everyone I knew my friends my family everyone supported me it was not um, an issue in my I'm life. I'm so glad to hear Which that. Actually. It's, it's not. It's not common, right? Like, yeah. Sure, I, I have heard horror stories that from people who came out in this environment in Utah sure. and have had really, really tough times. But that just wasn't my experience. Oh, that's great. But um, nevertheless, like as as a young gay man, part of like trying to connect with the gay community for me was um, going to bars and clubs and uh, right. meeting people. And as part of that, I started occasionally having a drink here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, I had uh, as Given kind of my childhood experience, I uh, had some symptoms of PTSD and trauma, and um, uh, my doctor at that time had put me on some um, benzodiazepines like Xanax, Clonopin, uh, to kind of help treat that. But the combo of alcohol and benzos mm-hmm. really just yep. kind of something clicked in my mind, right? Like that oh, was, yeah. it gave me the peace of mind that I've been searching for for so long mm-hmm. um, that I just couldn't find anywhere else. And so the the uh, drinking became more frequent, and when I did drink, uh, it, it became uh, heavier. I would drink uh, more heavily. And uh, at some point, I think in my early 20s, I introduced um, uh, cocaine into the mix. Then. And that combination of alcohol and cocaine for me was just mm. like – it, it just gave me everything I was looking for. And so I was kind of always t- walking this tightrope of being either, oh, I'm a little too drunk, I should have more cocaine, or I'm a little too high, I should have more alcohol. And um, that perfect balance. Right? right? Yes. It's funny. I always searching thing. for it. I'm an yeah. alcoholic, and I did cocaine so that I'd feel more sober. Yes, right. Yeah, so I could drink yeah. more, really. I mean, I would never uh, I would never do cocaine by itself. It was just too much of right. a upper for me. It just, that's yeah. not what I was looking for, but it did give me the ability to drink more and to drink longer. Right. And that's what I liked about it. Yeah. Um, and so that, that persisted for many years. And I'm the kind of person that when I drink, um, I don't stop until something stops me. So, um, uh, I will continue drinking because I, I learned pretty quickly that I could avoid a hangover altogether if I just didn't stop. <laughs> and so, <laughs> Hey, what a solution. I right? Know, right. I mean, the, the thinking of someone with an active substance use problem, right? That's fair. <laughs> I should put the headline when we post this saying, uh, solution to hangover problems. (laughs) Hangover here. Keep drinking. That's right. That's right. I mean, it did feel miraculous at that time because, yeah. Um, But um, so it didn't take long for me to really develop uh, a serious physical dependency on alcohol. And so um, when I did start to come off of alcohol at that time, uh, I started having pretty severe 
DTs. So um, that would that would mean that I would start shaking and start feeling kind of delirious. Um, uh, a few times I had seizures in uh, detox from from alcohol, and so I was told by well, and for people that don't understand, coming off of alcohol is very dangerous. Very dangerous. It can be deadly. It can be fatal. It yeah. is. Yes. Yeah, it's more dangerous than coming off of heroin. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Right. And so I was told pretty early on, luckily, that if I was going to detox off of alcohol, I needed to do that with some medical assistance. So exactly. from that point on. I would always have to go to a hospital to go get the sure. resources I needed yeah. to get off of alcohol. And so that was, for me, a revolving door, uh, kind of going in and out of detox over and over and over again, um, because I didn't quite have the uh, desire or even hope for myself that I could get better. And so I hadn't really considered what recovery might look like for me. I didn't have examples of what that looked like in my life. I mean, my mom had been connected to 12-step groups and to other kinds of resources, had been to treatment many times. Um, but um, from my perspective, that that had failed her, that, that she didn't get um, what she needed from that. And so I thought, well, that, that I can't do it. If she, my mom couldn't do it, with all of her love for me and my brother, how um, could I possibly overcome this addiction? What was your bottom point? Oh, man, there were a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and because, yeah, you know, I, I've heard it said since that, you know, you reach your bottom when you stop digging. But I I, I yeah. kept digging for a while, right? Like right. I, I, I kept going down and down. And that meant um, I got arrested a number of times. There was times where I was detoxing in a jail bed, uh, had a seizure in jail at one point. Um, it just, it got really bad for me. And um, it, I think that when I think back on my recovery journey, the moment that things started to change were, was when I, um, uh, there's a few, but um, in 2011, uh, my mom died as a result of her drug and alcohol use. And um, she, she, she just went to sleep one night and didn't wake up. And I was the person that found her the next day. Ooh. And yeah. um, I had the uh, I had to break it to my brother that she had passed away, and um, it was it was tough. We were living with her at the time, and it was um, it was a really traumatic experience. Uh, and so, a few months after that is when I started to think, oh, "Man, I can't can't I can't do this. I can't go this way. I I don't want to die this way." Um, and so, I started kind of just trepidatiously at first getting involved with um, recovery groups and trying to access kind of community resources to help me find and sustain recovery. Um, but nevertheless, it was still a journey for me. There was ups and downs in that. So uh, I did well for a period of time for about six months initially, but then went back out for a while, um, tried to do what I've, I've heard called pulling a geographic where I moved across the country. I took a job yeah. in Washington, D.C. Yep. And so I was working in D.C., but then drinking eventually. Sure. And yeah, <laughs> and that did not end up well. I ended up um, homeless on the streets of Washington, D.C., which Whoa. is a, a scary place to be homeless. Um, and uh, felt absolutely hopeless. I, like, it was just, um, at, I think, when I think of a, a, a bottom, that's what I think of, is my experience uh, with nowhere to live in D.C., not knowing anyone, not being connected to anyone who loved or cared about me, just feeling totally isolated and alone. And and um, I, I, mean, I know that your story involves homelessness as well, and so I know yeah. that you know what that feels like, but it truly feels like so hopeless and desperate. 
um, because just even the way that people look at you on the street is oh, yeah. is, is, is dismissive, right? Yeah. yeah, you're invisible. Refuse to look at you. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly, just... right? Um, because and I think that we all want to think that we're so much more far removed from homelessness than we are, than we are right? Oh, right? But the truth is that we all have way more in common with the average homeless person than we do the average billionaire. Yeah. Like, oh, I am, absolutely. Even today, I'm <laughs> well much closer say. to being homeless than I am being a billionaire. I'm not going to be absolutely. Elon Musk anytime soon. But I can, I, I'm only probably a few paychecks away from being out on the street. Right. So, absolutely. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, it was just, it was, it was a truly harrowing experience. Um, and luckily what happened was I had some friends, a friend from high school, who just randomly reached out to me on social media and then, and then called me. And uh, it was the first time that I had truly gotten honest with somebody about what was happening in my life and, and really s- said, I need help. And she said, well, can you get to the airport? And I said, yeah. And she said, okay, I'm flying you back to Salt Lake, and then we're, we're going to deal with what we need to deal with then. So um, I, was, uh, I, I uh, flew back to Salt Lake, uh, stayed with her for a couple of days until she realized – what a disaster I was. <laughs> <laughs> and so she quickly got me up to um, the university to go to detox. And it was at that point that um, a number of people stepped into my life that um, really kind of changed the course of how things were going. Um, I mean, I had, I'd been homeless, so I didn't have health insurance. I didn't have any resources. This was prior to Medicaid expansion. So um, the options weren't great for me in terms of treatment centers to go to. Um, and so um, I was very lucky that I had uh, a family friend that stepped in and said, well, let me get you health insurance, and then I will pay whatever deductible we need to pay to get you into a treatment center. And so I was able to go to treatment for the first time, and that was a life-changing experience because I really had the opportunity to look at myself and my part in um, my experience growing up and really start to address some of that underlying trauma that I had gone through Um, because uh, I, I think that unless we do the things that we need to do to kind of address that, right. it'll keep com- the, the active addiction will keep coming back because it's our coping strategy, right? right? And so unless we develop other coping strategies, we keep going back to that one. And so I went to a, a lovely treatment center here. And then um, afterwards, I was very, very lucky in that I got a scholarship from uh, the Sobriety Foundation um, oh, to nice. go to um, Sober Living. And I went to Sober Living at Odyssey House. And so, yeah. yeah. I didn't know those yeah. parts. Yeah, I was Beautiful. at Anchor West. Yeah, because oh. we, so, we, we participate in the Sobriety Foundation's gala every exactly, year. Exactly, yeah. So, and, yeah. And actually today, yeah. now I'm on their board of directors. Cool. So uh, cool. it's all come full circle for me in that uh, respect, I too. But um, yeah, I mean, it's... It, Odyssey was a huge component of my early recovery at that time, like being able to have a safe place to go rest my head at night, um, a kind of community of people around me that were all working on the same thing and the same journey. And that's when I first got introduced to Usara. Um, so um, that that friend from of mine from high school, oddly enough, who um, had reached out when I was in D.C., she, in my early recovery, she said, I, I really want you to meet a good friend of mine. And... Um, uh, she said, uh, it's, this woman's my next door neighbor and has been for my entire life. I've known her all my life long. And her name's Mary Jo, and I want you to come meet her. And so um, my, my friend took me to, to Usara to meet Mary Jo, and we just connected right away. I mean, I, I, I know that, like, I feel like my, my relationship with Mary Jo is certainly very special, but I know that there's a lot of people with that exact same story because Mary Jo has touched so many lives in, in our state. I mean, she... Uh, there's so many people in the recovery community that can connect their early days in recovery in one way or another to the work that she's done in the last 
she, she is beloved in she, the recovery absolutely. community. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so at, it was at that point I started volunteering for USARA, and then um, a couple years later they eventually hired me. But even I mean, even in those couple years, I would I, I want to acknowledge it wasn't um, it wasn't all up for me. I mean, I had a couple incidents of use. I had some recurrence of use, and uh, had to go back to treatment at one point. Went to a different treatment center. So. That happens, right? It's. I think it's. It's fairly rare that someone goes to treatment and then has a kind of linear journey of recovery. hundred percent success rate. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So, um, I think that you know we just. I think that what I can acknowledge that I've done well for myself is that I've been resilient and just keeping, keeping Beautiful. at it. Yeah. Just keep Beautiful. coming up. You know. So, um, it doesn't matter if you get knocked down a couple of times. Even if you're the person that knocks yourself down, you just gotta keep standing up and keep yeah. keep at it because. On the other side of that, I think th- those of us at this table know how beautiful recovery can be, right? And um, and life just kind con- of con- continues to get better for me. I mean, it's still life, and there's life stuff that comes up, but I I cannot express enough how beautiful the journey has been, and um, and especially this last year for some reason. But my life today is so much better than I would have ever imagined it would be a few years ago. Uh, even in early recovery, when I was full of like hope and optimism about what my life might look like. Pink cloud. Right. I was yeah. just going to say. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Even in those days of like, like pink cloud kind of feeling, I would not, like if you had asked me to guess where I would be today, I would not describe how beautiful my life is today. I, w- I just didn't have the sufficient imagination to be able to even think of how good life could be. So, in like two minutes, where are you today? One minute. Oh, man. One minute. <laughs> one minute. Where, where are you today? Yeah, so I'm the development director of this amazing organization that I truly believe in at USARA. Um, and so uh, my journey there has been great. I, um, uh, I'm i in school, so I'm up at the University of Utah yes. studying social work. So the hope is that I'll continue my journey of being able to give back. Um, uh, so maybe one day I'll be the executive director of a nonprofit organization myself. That's the goal. Uh, but my life is just so rich. I've got friends and family and mm-hmm. um, dating. And, and, and so it just and, feels and you like... you are beloved in the recovery community Absolutely. as well. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. I, hope yeah. That I, I hope that I can um, contribute even just a, a, a fraction of what... Uh, some of my mentors in recovery have like you and you and Mary Jo and all these people. So just, yeah, that's my hope. Yeah, you definitely do. Evan Doan has been our guest from USARA, USARA, however you want to call it. And how can people... Uh, you have a place where people can just walk into if they need help, right? Right. We've got five of those locations across the state. So there's one in Salt Lake City, one in Ogden, one in Price, one in St. George, and now one that just opened in Moab. And so uh, with hopefully even more to come, uh, but you can find them all on our website at myusara.com. So M-Y-U-S-A-R-A.com. Beautiful. Oh. Well, if you have to get sober, I'm trying to think. If you need recovery in Moab or St. George, that'd be a good, place, be. To be. Yeah, good place to start. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Evan, thank you so much. Thanks. Uh, thank you for all you've done with you, Sarah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sarah. I, I just get confused on that. Rachel, good to see you again. I know. Thank you. And thank you for being here and all the I'm work you do. Like, you're incredible. Thank so you. I appreciate you. And if you're watching in Russia, Japan, Des Moines, Columbus... Or Utah, (laughs) whatever. (laughs) Thank you very much for watching another edition of Odyssey House Journals.